Well, at this point, we're going to transition into our time of God's Word. So if you brought a Bible with you, open it to Galatians chapter 5. Open your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. The theme of our message tonight is checking your spiritual temperature. And the question we want to answer is, how are you doing spiritually? When you look at your life, how are you really, really doing in your walk with the Lord? You know, if you're like me, whenever someone's asked those kind of questions in the past, you find it hard to be objective. You walk away from those kind of conversations and you ask yourself, boy, was I too hard on myself? Was I too soft in my own evaluation? However, you find it difficult to know how to be objective in those situations. However, the passage we're going to look at in just a few moments will give us a divine framework to help us honestly and accurately assess your own spiritual life. And as you're turning to the text, many of you know that, uh, that one of the common things that goes along with a job is having a job review or a job assessment. And uh, for those of you, I know I've had several over the years, and I know several of you have had that as well. And hopefully, whenever you've had something like that, it's been a positive experience, a, a good experience for you. The following list, however, are some comments I came across recently that you probably wouldn't want to hear in such a setting or in such an evaluation. There were 10 I came across, and here they were, just in order. Number one is this. This individual is not so much a has-been, but more like a never-will-be. That's not something you want to hear in an evaluation. Or how about this one? Number two, she sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. Or how about number three? This individual should go far, and the sooner he starts, the better. (laughs) Or how about number four? She has a special gift for making strangers immediately. Number five, some drink from the fountain of knowledge, but he only gargled. Uh, Number six, (laughs) the wheel might be turning, but the hamster is definitely dead. (laughs) Or how about number seven, she has a photographic memory with the lens cover glued on. Number eight, if you gave him a penny for his thoughts, you'd actually get some change. Number nine, she brings a ton of joy to the office as soon as she leaves the room. And number 10, he's as bright as the state of Alaska in the month of December. I'm sure all of you would agree with me that those are not the kind of comments you want to hear at a job review. That's, that's not the kind of feedback every person dreams of hearing or receiving from their boss. But looking at that list, it reminded me how much evaluations plays such a huge part in every one of our lives. And that's true not only on the, the receiving side of things, but especially on the giving side of things. I mean, if you've stop, ever stopped to consider how much you evaluate the things of life, the things that are around you, we are all constant evaluators. And that's true not only on the receiving side of things, again, but also on the giving side of things. On a regular basis, we often evaluate things like what places to go and where not to go, what places to eat. We evaluate restaurants and what restaurants to avoid. We evaluate things like how we should spend our time and maybe what things we shouldn't put on our calendar, what things we should avoid putting on our to-do list. If you're a sports fan, I know we're getting close to the bowl season. We're already in it. Which teams to root for and which teams to root against? If you're a fan of skiing and snowboarding, uh, you go up on the mountain, you, you evaluate which hill should I go down and which hill should I avoid? 
you know, about five or six years ago, I'll never forget, just a little footnote to that. Um, there, there was a gentleman in our body who was an avid skier. And I went up to him and I said, hey, do you mind if I go? It's been years since I've skied. And I'd love to get back and do it and, and, and do a little bit of skiing. And he said, sure, I'll take you up. So there was this discount day up at Big Sky and we went up to Big Sky. And I think if I remember correctly, it was the first, maybe the second run where he took me right up to a black diamond run. And I, we were going along and I'm like, are you sure about this? Or, or, should we be getting off right now? And he said, you'll be fine, John. Um, I'll be honest, growing up, I never did gymnastics, but, but some of the cartwheels I did down that mountain. I'm sure I got a 10 somewhere in there. It was unbelievable. Um, uh, evaluation. We did a poor job, at least I did, of, of evaluating which hill I should go down, which hill I should avoid. But the fact is, here's the thing. All of us are evaluators. We evaluate, evaluate things we buy and people we hang around and places we go and stuff we eat, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But the question we want to answer tonight is this. Not so much how do we evaluate other people or other things or the stuff we buy and, and all the exteriors of life, but, but to sort of put the mirror in front of us, the question we want to answer tonight is, hey, how do we evaluate ourselves? Or, or, or more specifically, what criteria should we use when we're evaluating our own spiritual lives. And the good news is we don't have to look far when we're answering those kind of questions because the answer to that question is found in our text right here in Galatians chapter 5. So follow along as I read verses 16 through 23 of this text. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, Murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such, thing, th- such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. Here in this section, Paul lays out a divine framework for how we can honestly and accurately assess our own spiritual lives. He gives us some tangibles for how we can check our spiritual temperature. And just like a thermometer provides an accurate reading of one's physical condition, Paul in this passage here gives us a spiritual thermometer to help us find out how we're really doing in our Christian lives. The criteria for personal assessment are found in the latter part of the passage. However, understanding the first part, I believe, is is key to understanding the text as a whole. And so with that as background, let's look at our text beginning with verse 16. Paul writes this. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The first thing this passage tells us to do is to walk in the Spirit. And the question that comes to mind is, hey, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, to walk in the Spirit means to walk in close fellowship with the Spirit by living the way He wants us to live. 
It means to go where the Spirit is going. It means to follow where He is leading and to move in the same direction He is headed. You know, the picture that comes to mind, I'll never forget when I was a young kid growing up in Southern California, I played in this Pop Warner Football League when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and, uh, for the West Valley Eagles and uh, the San Fernando Valley. And I'll never forget some of the drills we would do as young kids. One of them was, it was sort of like follow the leader, but it was follow coach. And so you had all these, you know, eight or nine-year-old kids who were wearing these uniforms and helmets that are like twice our size. And, and uh, it was just kind of fun. We were just in a single file line and wherever coach went, we went. And so if he went to the right, we would go to the right. If he went to the left, we would go to the left. If he stopped, hopefully everyone else did or otherwise it turned into just one big domino game. And, uh, but, but that's the image that comes to mind when it comes to walking in the spirit. It means going where the spirit is going and moving about where he wills. And the question that comes to mind is, well, how do we know what the Spirit's will is for our lives? How do we know where he's going? How do we know what his will is? And the answer is fairly simple. We turn to the Bible, which is the Holy Spirit-inspired word. You see, as we read the word of God and as we obey the Spirit's commands, the result is close fellowship with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. Furthermore, as we read the word of God and as we obey the Spirit's commands, our spiritual muscles are strengthened and our ability to fight sin becomes even greater and greater each day. And that's why verse 16 reads this. It says, walk in the Spirit, but it doesn't stop there. It says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, there's sort of a two-sided thing when it comes to walking the Spirit. Walking the Spirit not only moves us in the direction that God wants us to go, but it also helps us to resist temptation and the many sinful desires of our flesh. And so Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, one other thing I want to point out in relation to walking the Spirit is this, is that walking in the Spirit has far more to do with relationship than it does just following a bunch of rules. In other words, it has more to do with abiding in Christ than it does just trying to crank out a moral life. And you say, what's the difference? Well, the difference has to do with motive. Do you do what you do just because it's the right thing to do? Or do you do what you do with a desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? One is measured in terms of rules and regulations, whereas the other is measured in terms of relationship. It's kind of like in a marriage. Imagine if a husband goes up to a wife and says, honey, I'm going I'm to be faithful to you in our marriage because I have to. I, I'm obligated to. That's, that's what I uh, committed to at the moment we came together on the altar and, at the altar. And, and so I'm going to be faithful to you because it's the right thing and, and I have to do that. Imagine that scenario versus this scenario. Honey, I'm going to be faithful to you in our marriage because you're the best thing in my life. And I love you so much. I don't want to do anything to, to break that trust. I want to build our marriage. And so I want to be faithful to you in light of that. Do, do you see the difference between the two? Is the same thing being communicated? Yes. Both, in both senses, or both situations, a, a commitment to be faithful is being expressed. But again, in one, it's being measured in terms of obligation, in terms of I have to do this. Whereas the other, it's measured in terms of a love relationship. And that's the emphasis. That's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And I appreciate one commentator who said this. He said in summarizing this whole idea of walking in the Spirit, he said the most basic thing about being a Christian is the fact that it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But so often after entering the relationship, we slide into a rules and regulations mindset. However, there's no power in that approach to the Christian life. The power to live the Christian life comes not from following a set of rules, but rather from an ongoing, thriving relationship to the indwelling Spirit of God, end quote. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's so easy to start defining our faith by just, Pastor Brian talked about that this morning, right? Just defining our faith by a moral code, by, by rules and regulations, just by a list of do's and don'ts, and we forget that this, thing about, this whole thing about Christianity, it's first and foremost about a relationship with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in verse 16, he says, I say then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What are these verses saying? What, is, what does Paul mean by these verses? What these verses are basically describing is the inner struggle that takes place within every Christian between doing what the spirit wants and doing what our flesh wants. And if you're a Christian, you know exactly the kind of struggle I'm referring to, right? There's often this tension that rages within us between doing the things that God wants us to do and giving into our fleshly desires. There's often a battle going on within us to resist saying what we might naturally want to say or responding how we might naturally respond or looking at what we shouldn't obviously look at in order to please the Lord in our lives. That's the tension being described here. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If while in the fight... If while in the battle we choose to yield to the Spirit by obeying the Word of God, then our lives will begin to take on the traits that are described in verses 22 and 23. However, if we choose to relax in the fight, and if we choose to just give in to our fleshly desires, the fact is our lives can begin to take on the characteristics described in the next three verses. To summarize the following verses, have a lot to do with the issue of fruit. Not physical fruit, right? Not bananas and oranges and grapes and those. No, we're talking about spiritual fruit. The Bible teaches that our hearts are like a tree and that our actions are like fruit. Therefore, whatever comes out in our actions is a direct reflection of what is going on in our hearts. Our actions and our words reflect the true spiritual condition of our hearts. And we know that because of what Jesus said in Luke 6, where he said, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Jesus was basically teaching in that text is this. Listen, there's a direct pipeline between our hearts, between what's going on in our hearts and what's going on in our actions. What we do outwardly is indicative of what's taking place on the inside. With that in mind, let's look together at verse 19 where Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Let's stop here for a moment. And so Paul gives us here, he mentions that the following list of qualities reflect a person who is not walking in the spirit. And what qualities does Paul mention here? Well, the first is adultery. And this refers to someone who pursues a romantic relationship outside of one's marriage. The next one he mentions is fornication. This comes from the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. 
It's a broad word. It refers to all sorts of immorality, including looking at graphic images or graphic scenes, getting involved physically in a relationship, premarital sex, homosexuality, along with a host of other sexual sins. The third he mentions is uncleanness. This refers to sexual sin that permeates one's mind. It it, it permeates one's thinking. The next is lewdness. This refers to a person who pursues sexual immorality without any limits. This kind of individual not only engages in immorality, but also brags about it as if it's something to be proud of. The next uh, quality Paul mentions is idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry isn't just bowing down to some wooden image over in some far Middle Eastern country. It is that, but it's more than that. Idolatry is when we allow anything in our lives to become more important to us than God. It can involve things. It can involve money. It can involve a certain relationship. It can involve the desire for popularity, the desire for recognition, and the list goes on. The next quality he mentions is sorcery. This refers to the use of mind-altering drugs to get in touch with the supernatural. The next quality he mentions is hatred. This quality speaks of a deep-seated anger or a deep-seated resentment towards someone who has offended you. The next one is contentions. This is what results when anger or hatred is left unchecked. The next is jealousies. This is an interesting word. In the Greek, this comes from the Greek word zelos. It's where we get our English word zeal. This refers to someone who's so zealous about something that he becomes harsh or abrasive to those who are around him. And can I just say, even those who are committed to the truth, they can be this way, can't they? This could, be, this could refer to a zeal about even something that is good, but they're overzealous, that they run over people, they're abrasive, they're harsh. And unfortunately, some Christians see this quality as a virtue, but the Bible tells us it's a work of the flesh. The next quality Paul mentions is outbursts of wrath. This refers to the type of person who vents when he or she gets angry. That's another evidence of a person who's not walking in the Spirit. And can I also add this? It's also the evidence of a fool. Because in Proverbs 29, 11, Solomon said this. He said, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds him back. The next quality is selfish ambitions. This refers to selfishness that leads to quarrels, selfishness that leads to, to fighting and to arguments. The next is dissensions. This describes someone who is divisive and therefore is really hard to get along with. When you look at this person's life, this is the kind of person who, who attracts a lot of conflict. Thus, there's usually a lot of relational conflict surrounding this individual. And here's the problem. Here's the problem is that usually that individual thinks the problem is always out there. In other words, the problem is always with him or the problem is always with her or with my teacher or with my parent or with my spouse or with my boss. And what they don't recognize is that while they think the arrow is always pointing out, in reality, the arrow is pointing where? In toward that individual. The next quality mentioned is envy. Now, now when you look at scripture, there's really two levels of envy. There's sort of a, a surface envy, which says, I want what you have, right? I want your car. I want your, your situation in life, your circumstances, your money. Your, that's sort of the surface level envy. I want what you have. But then there's a deep-seated envy, which says, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. The next quality mentioned is murders. Murder. That's pretty self-explanatory. Anger that leads to murder. Drunkenness. Again, needs no explanation. A person who likes to go to parties, get drunk, get intoxicated. Obvious reflection of a person who's not walking in the spirit. 
And the last quality Paul mentions is revelries. This refers to someone who engages in wild parties and all the sort of the gross immorality that is associated in those types of settings. And notice the next thing Paul says, and he says, and the like. In other words, this list here doesn't have a firm period at the end of it. It's almost like a comma, like the list goes on. There's, there's many other qualities. This is just a sample list of what it looks like to not walk in close fellowship with the Spirit, of not walking closely with God. And then he continues, he says, of the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the question that comes to mind is, what, what does Paul mean by that? In verse 20, what is, what is he saying there at the end? Well, I think the point Paul is making here is this. At the end of this verse, he's basically saying this. If a Christian yields himself to the desires of his flesh, then he can begin to do things and live in a way that unbelievers live. After all, the qualities I just listed, the qualities I just covered, describe or define the lifestyle of unbelievers, right? Sexual morality, hatred, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and the list goes on. And I think what Paul is saying is this. When a Christian yields to the flesh and begins to engage in those kind of behaviors, there's a sense in which he's living and acting no different than the unbelieving world. And that's a terrible way to live life, isn't it? It's a tragic way for a child of God to live his or her life. But notice the contrast in verse 22. Paul says in verse 22, but, major contrast here, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Here in these two verses, Paul provides us with nine expressions of a fruitful life. In contrast to the works of the flesh, he gives us nine evidences of a spirit-filled life. Now, before we unpack each of the expressions or each of the terms here, I want to offer a few preliminary thoughts, just overarching thoughts to help us guide us as we work through this text together, these last two verses. And the first thing I want to mention is this. I'm going to mention three preliminary thoughts if you'd like to take notes. The first is this. Number one is this. Each of the qualities listed are of a supernatural value and therefore are clear evidences of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Each of the qualities listed are of a supernatural value and therefore are clear evidences of the Spirit's work in a person's life. What do I mean by that? Well, take, for example, the virtue of love. When it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's not describing a person who loves others when loved in return or loves others who are easy to like, those who are likable. Listen, anyone can do that. Instead, this is talking about a supernatural love that displays itself to those who are unkind, unfriendly, And can I just say it just to to people who are just plain hard to like? In other words, this is a love that is unique and is obviously derived from the Lord. And you can just multiply that out. Joy. It's not talking about joy when life is good. It's not talking about about having joy when you're at an amusement park and, and everything is just, you're on a mountaintop experience and everything's great in life. No, it's talking about joy in adversity, joy in hardship, joy in trials. And you can just multiply that, multiply that out. So again, each of the qualities listed are of a supernatural value and are a clear evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Number two is this. Each of the qualities listed describe the result of walking in the Spirit and not what a person needs to do 
to walk in the Spirit. Does that make sense? Each of the qualities listed describes the result of walking in the Spirit, not necessarily what a person needs to do to walk in the Spirit. In other words, the point of this passage isn't just to identify what's missing and say, hey, I'm going to be more of that. I'm missing in love. I'm going to be more loving. I'm missing in kindness. I'm going to be more of that. That would be like going up to a tree and saying, hey, this tree has no apples. I need to go get a stapler. I'm just going to go staple up a bunch of apples on this tree, and that'll take care of this tree. Would there be any value in that? No way. And in a similar fashion, there's no value in someone who just tries to crank out each of these virtues apart from pursuing a close walk with God. Now, of course, we need to bring a balance here, right? Because God doesn't accomplish spiritual things in our lives apart from our will. It's not like we sit on the couch or sit in the pew and just say, Lord, do this, and I'm just going to relax. But the point of this specific passage isn't to go and do all these things, but rather to show us what the results look like when a person is cultivating a close walk with Jesus Christ. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. And then a third sort of uh, preliminary thought to keep in mind is that each of the qualities listed are the result of a process and not just a moment's decision. Each of the qualities listed are the result of a process and not just a moment's decision. And this is indicated by the phrase walk in the spirit back in verse 16. That, that, that Greek term walk is in the present tense in the original language. The emphasis is on ongoing action. The idea here is as you habitually walk or as you continually walk in the spirit, your life will begin to take on the qualities listed in verses 22 through 23. And the reason I point that out is because I think our tendency is to want the fruit without the process. Isn't that right? We want our lives to be defined by love. We, we want kindness. We want peace. We want joy and patience. But we don't want what it takes to develop and nurture those qualities in our lives. You know, it's kind of like the, kind of like the ideal exercise machine Trace and I have been talking about recently in our marriage. Um, <clears throat> most mornings, Trace and I usually get up fairly early to, to go for a morning run. And, and, and while some days we just sort of jump out of bed and, and head out the door and go for a run, uh, other days go something like this. The alarm goes off and, and, uh, and, and then Tracy says, or I'll say to her, Tracy, do you want to go for a run this morning? And she'll say, No. And uh, she'll say, how about you? And I'll say, definitely not. And, uh, and eventually we slowly get out of bed and we get our, our, our workout outfits on. We go out the door. But, but sometimes our conversations go like this. We're, we're kind of star- staring at the ceiling in our bedroom and we're like, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if, if there was just this exercise machine that would just drop out of our ceiling and, 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 and come over our bed and just encase us in the middle of the night? And maybe there would be a device that would sort of pick up each of our limb and just shake it for like a half hour each, right? And, and pick up a leg and then pick up the arm. And, and then about six hours later, you would wake up in the morning without just a single drop of sweat on your body and about 2,000 calories lighter. How many would love an exercise machine like that? We would be all over that. I, would, I mean, can you imagine getting the results of a workout without actually having to do the workout itself? That would be amazing. We would love that. Listen, the same is often true when it comes to growth and godliness. Isn't it our attitudes toward that are, or bearing spiritual fruit? We want godliness. We want spiritual fruit without the regular discipline of reading God's word and talking to God through prayer and getting involved in ministry and fellowshipping with other believers. However, that's not how it works. Again, the emphasis in this text is an ongoing relationship and an ongoing process and not just a moment's decision. 
And so what are three important thoughts to keep in mind as we move into this text? Number one, each of the qualities listed are of a supernatural value and therefore are clear evidences of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Number two, each of the qualities listed describe the result of walking in the Spirit, not necessarily what a person needs to do to walk in the Spirit. And number three, each of the qualities listed are the result, or, or I'm sorry, each of the qualities listed are the result of a process and not just a moment's decision. And so with those three thoughts in mind, let's now turn our attention to these nine expressions of a fruitful life. And of course, the first one Paul mentions, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit and the first quality is what? Love. Love. And again, let me remind you that this is not talking about the quality of loving those who are likable or loving those you get along with or loving those who you share similar interests with in life or or loving those with whom you share a close relationship or a close friendship. After all, any person can do that. Anyone can do that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have in heaven? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your friends only, what do you do more than others? It's not hard to love a person who's friendly. It's not hard to love a person who's kind or who's thoughtful and who's, who's caring. But the real test is, hey, how do you respond to those who are difficult to be around? How do you respond to those who, who are hard to get along with? People who rub you the wrong way. If you're like me, your natural tendency is to avoid people like that or to resent people like that or to treat those kind of people in the same manner that they treat you. And yet scripture tells us the fruit of the spirit is not anger. The fruit of the spirit is not resentment, but it's love. Second, the second quality is joy. What is joy? I love Rick Holland's definition. He says, true biblical joy is a sweet attitude in response to God's sovereignty. That's what joy is. It's a sweet attitude in response to the sovereignty of God. Most of you who live long enough to know that not everything that happens in life is sweet. There's some hard things that happen in life. And so the question is, hey, what is your attitude like when things don't go your way? What is your attitude like when you encounter hard situations in life? Do you tend to complain? Do you tend to get angry at God? Do you tend to contemplate selfish thoughts or become consumed with self-pity? Or do you respond with joy? It's important to keep in mind that the word joy does not refer to being silly or, or bouncing off the walls. Instead, what we're talking about is an inner, an inner settled joy that results from trusting in God. To see an example of this, just to, you know, sometimes it's hard to say, it's easier to find these, but it's harder to, hard to see what they look like. What does it look like in, in just everyday living? Well, to see an example of this, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn from Galatians just to the right to Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to look at a few scenarios from Paul's life. Ephesians chapter 1, and notice what Paul writes in verse 3, and we're going to be kind of flipping through a bunch of uh, passages here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here we see in this text, Paul exploding with joy as he considered the rich spiritual blessings that comes from knowing Christ personally. As he contemplated God's saving work in his life, the election of of God in his life, he just bursted out in joy and excitement and thankfulness. To see an example, turn to Philippians chapter one, just to the right, and we're just gonna kind of just keep working to the right. Philippians chapter one. And notice how Paul, in a similar fashion, opens up this letter. 
Philippians 1 verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with what? With joy. Paul says here, every time you come to mind, I pray for you. And when I do, my heart is filled with joy. And then turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. And Paul says here in this text, Colossians 1, 24, he says, I now what? Rejoice. I take joy in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so what we see here is that Paul took joy. He rejoiced in his sufferings because God used them to build up the believers and to strengthen the church at large. And then turn over to a couple more passages, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just turn to the right there, Paul's last letter, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And in verse 3, notice how he opens this letter as he exhorts Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank God, verse 3, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with what? There's our word again, joy. And here we see again that Paul was a man who was filled with joy. And then turn to the book of Philemon. Past Titus, the book of Philemon, in verse 4, notice how Paul opens this letter. Philemon, in verse 4, it says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become, become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have what? Great joy. And consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, our brother. Did you notice a pattern as I read through each of those passages? There are at least two things that stand out to me as I read through those passages that we just went through. Number one, Paul expressed great joy in each of the texts I just read. But there's also another commonality, another similarity between all of those passages, and it's this. Number two is that Paul was in prison when he wrote each of the passages I just read. Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during his first imprisonment, and he wrote the book of 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment, which was written shortly before he would die for his faith. In each of the five passages, Paul wrote from prison, and in each of the five passages, Paul expressed joy. How could he do that? How could he express joy in those circumstances? I'll tell you exactly how. Paul's anchor in life was not ease of life. It wasn't smoothness of circumstances, but rather it was knowing certain truths about God and his character. Namely, that God is sovereign and he is in control of everything in our universe, everything in life. And he uses everything in our lives for his glory and for the good of the believer. Those were the kind of truths that Paul built his life on. And those were the kind of truths that brought him joy. Now back to Galatians chapter 5. Back to Galatians chapter 5, and Paul continues this list here. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy. The third in the text is peace. Peace. What is peace? Well, let me start by saying what peace is not, or, or what he's not talking about here. Peace is not the absence of difficulty. It's not the absence of conflict in a person's life. Instead, true peace is the inner calm that sustains a Christian in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of adversity. The opposite of this quality, just on a, on a relational level, 
The opposite of this quality is someone who gets easily agitated or easily flustered when things don't go his or her way. Those who are like that are often a challenge to be around because a lack of calm often results in everyone else getting worked up. And that's not an enjoyable atmosphere for anyone. The next quality he mentions is long-suffering or patience. This comes from the Greek word makrothumia, uh, which is made up of two words in the original language. You have macro or makros, which means long, and then you have thumos, which means anger. Therefore, when you put the two together, the literal meaning is a long time before getting angry. That's what it means to be patient. It means to be slow to anger or slow at getting irritated or slow at getting frustrated with other people. Listen, anyone can lose his cool and give in to anger or frustration. But this passage tells us one of the evidences of a spirit-filled life is patience or long-suffering. The next quality uh, Paul mentions is kindness. What is kindness? Well, kindness is simply a, a gracious and friendly disposition toward other people. This quality describes someone who is tender, someone who is thoughtful, someone who is just considerate in their interactions with other people. And can I just say, if you know of someone who is like this, hold on to that friend for dear life because there are few things more encouraging in life than to be around somebody who is genuinely kind. You know, one of the things, uh, on a sad note, one of the things I've noticed throughout my years serving in ministry is that this quality is often most absent and those who are committed to standing for the truth. Now, let me be quick to add that, that standing for the truth, not com- compromising the truth, those are commendable qualities, great qualities to have as a Christian, but not at the expense of being kind. Hey, does God want us to be unwavering in our devotion to him? Yes. Does God want us to be uncompromising with the truth? Absolutely. But guess what? At the same time, he also wants us to be kind. And unfortunately, rarely do you see those those qualities in a person run through each other. Often you find a person who's bold and courageous, and yet they're harsh and abrasive. Or sometimes you'll see a person who's kind and friendly, and maybe they lack that courage and boldness in their life. And while our tendency is to be either one or the other, hey, God wants us to be both. He wants us to be both. One other thing worth mentioning is that there are few qualities. Listen to this. There are few qualities that can impact the life of an unbeliever like the quality of kindness. How can I say that? Well, in Romans 2, 4, Paul tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to what? Repentance. In other words, it wasn't God's anger that led us to repentance. It wasn't the wrath of God that led us to repentance, but rather his kindness. I think that's an important thought to keep in mind as you seek to impact other people for the kingdom, as you seek to impact others for the Lord. The next quality he mentions is goodness. What is goodness? This is the quality that describes someone who's servant-minded, who looks to serve others in practical ways. It's described over in chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do what? Good, goodness, good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's what it's talking about, looking for ways to do good, looking for practical ways to minister to other people in the body of Christ. Seventh is faithfulness. This refers to somebody who's dependable, somebody who's trustworthy. When your life is in tune with the Spirit, the more reliable you become because your word actually begins to mean something. The opposite of this quality is someone who's unreliable or not trustworthy or inconsistent or unfaithful. Those traits not only reflect a person who is not walking in the Spirit, but they also reflect a person who's hard to minister to, who's hard to invest into. You say, what do you mean by that? 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years where somebody has told me, man, so-and-so is such a neat person, but I just had to stop meeting with him. I just had to stop meeting with her because of a lack of faithfulness. He never showed up. She rarely ever did the homework. He ever hardly followed through with any of my counsel. She rarely ever showed up on time or whenever she did, it just, it was sort of hit and miss. No wonder Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 too, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to who? Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen, faithfulness is such an essential quality when it comes to the issue of discipleship. And Paul tells us here in Galatians 5 that faithfulness is one of the evidences of the Spirit's work in a person's life. The next quality Paul mentions is gentleness or meekness. This refers to someone who possesses a humble and a teachable attitude to the Word of God and to the people of God. When confronted with sin, this is the type of person who's quick to admit his faults and confess them to the Lord. The opposite of this quality is someone who tends to get defensive, someone who lacks openness to correction. That's usually our natural response when others point out weaknesses in our lives or shortcomings in our lives or deficiencies in our lives. Our natural tendency is to get defensive, to sort of say, well, who are you to come to me? Look at your own life. Look at the shortcomings in your own life. That's our natural tendency, but this passage tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is humility. It's an openness to correction from God's Word and from God's people. And the last quality Paul mentions is self-control. Do you want want to know what it means to be self-controlled? This term basically refers to the ability to control oneself. And some of you are thinking, wow, John, that was insightful. (laughs) What commentary did you borrow that from? Um, it's really not all that hard to define self-control. It's hard to live it, isn't it? It's hard to be self-controlled. This, this is talking about a self-control over one's thoughts life, a thought life, words, priorities, lusts, and the list goes on. You see, self naturally wants to be lazy. Self naturally wants to do what's ever easy, whatever's easier, whatever uh, you know, feels right in the moment. And yet, Scripture tells us the spirit-filled person is one who is marked by self-control. So there you have it. Nine expressions of a fruitful life. Are you feeling convicted? (laughs) I know I am. And here's the thing. Are you ready for this? Hey, if one of these qualities is missing in your life, the solution isn't merely to, to, to attack the issue. The solution, are you ready for this, is to draw near to Christ and seek to abide in him. Get to know God better. Pursue him with a greater fervency. You see, the more you abide in the vine the better the fruit will be the outcome. Would you close in prayer with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to give you a moment just as we've sort of titled this message and sort of the theme of our text is checking your own spiritual condition, checking your own spiritual temperature. As we look at the text in front of us, how are you honestly doing your spiritual life? How are you doing? Look 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 at the text. Ask yourself, how am I really doing in my walk with the Lord. And here's the thing. Again, if you look at this list and you look at these qualities and say, wow, I'm noticing I'm not as self-controlled as I ought to be. I'm not as loving, not as kind, not as patient, not as peaceful as I ought to be. Just remember the issue isn't just to attack the issue. That's not the solution. The solution is to draw closer to Christ. The solution is to abide in your relationship with him. And so if you're here tonight and you see any deficiency, any area of your life where you fall short, ask the Lord to to fill your heart with a a love for Christ, 
more of a love for him and that you would ask him to draw, uh, draw you closer to him as this new year unfolds and so that you can live your life in a way that is pleasing to him and that is, will bring glory to his name. And so, Father, we do pray for these things. We do pray that as we move into this new year, Father, help us to honestly assess our own spiritual lives. Help us to honestly look at our own hearts and our own lives and to find out where maybe we fall short, maybe where we don't line up. And Lord, help us to remember again that the solution isn't just to, just to crank out the issue, just to, just to discipline ourselves and just run off and, and do this or do that or try to develop some sort of checklist. We realize that the solution is similar to what Pastor Brian addressed this morning, and that is developing a love for God, developing our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Father, that would be our prayer as we move into this new year, that you would draw us ever closer to you, that you would draw us closer in a more intimate way, that you, we would be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, where he says, not that I've already attained, not that I've already apprehended, but I press on that I may know Christ more, that I might glorify him in our lives. May that, that statement be true of us this year. And may our lives, again, not be focused on a set of rules, not, a set, not a, some kind of list of regulations, but may it be focused on the person, the living Savior, Jesus Christ himself, your Son, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things, in Jesus' name, amen.